So really, you're the thrill-seeking risk-seeker here. <laughs> I also snowboard, yes. Yeah, so See, there you go. I know. I have a bit of that in me. I'm saying I'm not totally risk-averse, <laughs> but I also feel like, you know, I wouldn't want anything to happen because it's not just me it would impact. It would impact my husband, my kids, like my family. Right, yes. Whereas I have no regard for anyone. Um, so <laughs> that's not true. Mom, in case you're listening. Yeah, exactly. She doesn't. She doesn't listen to my podcast. She doesn't love me that much. Welcome to the Mostly Money Podcast with your host, Preet Banerjee. This is Mostly Money, and I'm your host, Preet Banerjee. And on the show today, I am joined by my friend, Robin Tobe, who is not your typical accountant. And she's going to talk to us a little bit about the financial gender gap, the influence of personality on different financial behaviors between genders. We're really going to dig into this. And um, I'm, I'm particularly pleased that that Robin asked to come onto the podcast and she bribed me. Um, and I'm going to let her explain what that bribe was. Not that she needed one, but uh, first of all, Robin, welcome to the show. Thanks, Preet. So tell me what is sitting on the table right now. Well, I I wanted to come on the podcast. I'd been on it before, and I'm a big fan of the show. So I know that Preet drinks uh, whiskey with his guests, and I know that he's got a collection, and he's a bit snobby about it. <laughs> so... I said to, uh, so, you know, I sent him a picture. My husband has a quite a nice whiskey collection, and I sent him a picture of it. And that picture was amazing. Of his cabinet, like his custom-built cabinet. I thought I have a nice collection. <laughs> it pales in comparison to the bottles that were in that cabinet. Holy smokes. Well, he's been doing it for probably 30 years, collecting. Wow. And drinking. <laughs> That's the important part. <laughs> so I said to him, you know, I said, the podcast is on Friday and I need you to give me a bottle that's really going to impress Preet and that he's going to be really excited about. So he gave me this. It's called a Port Ellen. It is a limited edition. It has a specific bottle number. It says one of only 9,000 bottled in 2003. And... Um, I had it in my office at my home, and I really had to guard it because my son kept saying, I really want to try that before. I was like, no, no, no one's touching this. I'm taking this to, to the Mostly Money podcast on Friday. Yeah, so that distillery, Port Ellen, is storied. It's famous. And uh, I haven't tried it yet. It's sitting there looking at me, <laughs> calling my name. Um, we're going to enjoy it, I think, after the podcast. It's a little early for It whiskey. is a little early. It is a little early. Yeah, this is being recorded before noon, which, you know, to me, I don't really see as a problem, but, you know, societal norms being what they are. Right. We'll wait. I wonder if there's a whiskey gender gap, too. Oh, interesting. You know, I find like it's kind of a guy's drink. Yeah. Not a lot of women like it, but more and more of the women I know do like it. Yeah. But are you a neat drinker or are you I on am. the rocks? Okay, yeah. so... Yeah, Maybe I do. More women drink I do experiment a little bit, so I never add ice. Um, I will at times, like doing a tasting, add a drop mm -hmm. just to see what the change is, because mm -hmm. you know, adding it, just a single drop can make a big difference. And I know, like it's it's such a thing. Like there are some distilleries where you can buy water from the local, oh. you know, water source. Because they say, well, this is the water that we use, you know, in the distillation mm -hmm. process and when we're cutting okay. the whiskey and whatnot. So you should use this water as opposed to this water. But then right? you take the bottle home and you're not exactly going to get 
that yeah, water anymore. Yeah, no, it's 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 yeah. one of those snobby things. Yeah, right? yeah. But, uh, I am. I, I cannot thank you enough, and your husband enough. My like, pleasure. This is really, really a treat. And again, for any listeners who are also, you know, potential guests, this is not a requirement to bring whiskey. <laughs> it's really awesome, <laughs> but not a requirement. Um, okay, let's talk a little bit about yourself before we get into our topic. Um, so you're an accountant by training. I am, but you're not an accountant. I mean. Well, I am. It's You've got a personality. Hard. Thank you. There's stereotypes <laughs> that's a out joke. there. I know. That's a total stereotype yeah. joke. Most of the accounts I know are really awesome. <laughs> but oh, it's good. one of those stereotypes. Yeah. Most of the accounts I know are pretty awesome, too. Um, <laughs> but there is a stereotype. But I, I still feel like, yeah, I, I am a numbers person. Mm-hmm. And we'll talk about this when we talk about personality, too. Uh, I'm definitely a numbers person. I'm pretty analytic. Um, I am extroverted, so I do have a personality but I do feel comfortable in the numbers world and in the financial domain, which I guess is why I was drawn to uh, to do my commerce degree and then to become an accountant and then to you know be in this financial literacy world that mm-hmm. we're both in. Yeah, well, you know, it's it's a it's a killer combination to be um, attracted to numbers and to be extroverted and to be an educator. And you have those skills because this is what you do, right? Mm -hmm. You are a financial educator and you've got uh, an extensive background in the professional services. So what are, what are some of the types of work that you're doing out there right now? Right. So what else, what else is unusual about me is that I also like to write. So Mm -hmm. a lot of numbers, people aren't good writers um, and vice versa. People that are very creative or like to write aren't great with numbers, but I really like to write and that's what I do a lot of now. So I create content, written content um, for different partners, different banks um, and other financial institutions. Um, And I also speak um, about money and different topics. And I've written a book, uh, which came out about eight years ago, called A Parent's Guide to Raising Money Smart Kids. And you were on the podcast and I was about on the po- seven years ago, I right? know, talking about that book when it first came out. So I do really enjoy writing and communicating, um, but it usually goes has a financial component to it. And, and how old are your kids? 22 and 24. I should have them on the podcast and test them. <laughs> To see how good they are with money. Proof of the pudding's in the eating, right? Well, I always refer to them as mostly money smart. You know, they're not perfect, but they're pretty good. Well, they'd be perfect guests for the Mostly Money podcast. Oh my God, my son would probably love to be, uh, probably both. I have a son and a daughter. He's the older one. I think they would both like to to do that. We'll have to set that up. Yeah, we'll bring them on both at the same time. And then uh, we can talk about their own potential financial gender gaps as well. Which brings us to our topic, which is the financial gender gap. So um, why don't you, you set us up? Um, I know that uh, you do a lot of work with the CPA um, Mm -hmm. Association, and uh, there's been some some reports and a lot of study that they've commissioned. And why don't you set up the entire issue about the um, size of the financial gender gap? What are the different financial gender gaps? I mean, I'm sure most people know about um, the gender gap in pay, but there's more to it than just that. So yes. why don't you set the stage for us? Okay. So I think there's different ways to look at the, the financial gender gap. And I think of it almost like there's a macro level and a micro level. Mm-hmm. So on the macro level, we know that there are some, you know, there's the gender pay gap. So that's the fact that women are paid less than men. And the average gap is, women make between 78 to let's say 82 cents for every dollar that a man makes. And over a lifetime, that can really add up to a lot of money. 
Then there's the fact that women tend to take more career breaks for having children, raising kids, and even taking care of elderly family members. Um, so their salaries tend to peak um, earlier, like maybe in their 40s, whereas for men, they peak later. And then women are also living longer than men. Mm -hmm. um, on average, I think about five years longer. And I've seen studies that show that like over a woman's life, like the chances are that she's going to have to manage money on her own at some point, whether it's being single or through death or divorce. I mean, other gaps that you hear about are the uh, investing gap. So women invest later than men do later in life. They invest less, they invest with less confidence. So there's all these gaps, but then it, as I said, there's also a micro level, which mm -hmm. is how men and women deal with money themselves individually. And does that actually feed into these larger issues and how the two are connected? So there is a body of research that shows a gap in the financial knowledge and capability between men and women. And that led to this belief that there was this financial gender gap. But there's be beginning to be new research that shows that when you really dig into this, there's other things that um, influence uh, these outcomes. And those are things like socioeconomic factors, such as age, income, and education between men and women, and then personality. So as you mentioned, pre CPA Canada did a study recently, and what it showed was that um, on things like making ends meet, keeping track of money, planning ahead, choosing financial products, and staying informed about finances, there weren't huge differences when you dug into these things between men and women. It really, it wasn't really about what gender you were. It really more came down to certain aspects of your personality. Okay, so there's a lot to unpack there. Let's start um, towards the beginning of some of your comments. Sure. So uh, identifying the different types of gender gaps, uh, different financial gender gaps. Mm -hmm. So when we hear about the discrepancy in pay, so is this purely discrimination um, or is the gaps in uh, career a function of that? What What is the mix? Is there any research that kind of tells you? Because it, it's obviously... Obviously, there's discrimination, yeah. right? But how much of it is as a result of discrimination versus, say, uh, the career breaks? Like, what's the, what's the impact? I think there's. It's so complicated. I think some of it is self selection too, in that women tend to go into careers that are maybe not as high paying and not as lucrative. Women tend to be more nurturing, more uh, agreeable, and they t tend to go into things like nursing and teaching and those more stereotypical female type jobs. The financial services industry, for example, is really male-dominated. Had noticed. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I'm sure you have, actually. Yeah. Um, you know, I think in the U.S., 86% of investment advisors are men, and they're usually older men, 15 plus. So it's kind of an industry that's for men, built by men. Even when I started in the accounting profession, it was really male-dominated. It's not so much anymore, but half and half, uh, it's it's pretty evenly split in terms of uh, the people going into it. But in the senior leadership positions, you still see it's mostly men. And I think, you know, there's so many issues. There's a lack of visible role models for women. There's um, unconscious bias. There's work-life balance, like you were saying, taking career breaks for kids. Um, so, you know, but for um, women, at, if you compare jobs that are at the same level, mm -hmm. that are where men and women are doing the actual same job, why would a woman be making less money? Does she not negotiate as hard for her raises and promotions? Like that's like a, 
a big issue. Um, sometimes women don't advocate as strongly for themselves as they do for others. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe they're not getting the stretch assignments and the, um, the, you know, those types of jobs that really allow you to build the experience you need to advance into leadership and therefore be paid more. Um, and also I think sponsorship and mentorship is a huge thing. So, um, a lot of people have mentors, so those are people that they speak with and they that give them career advice, but a sponsor is really someone who will advocate for you when you're not in the room and who will use their own uh, political capital to help advance your career. Mm-hmm. And there's an affinity bias with that, like a lot of men will sponsor men that kind of look and seem just like them and they won't take a chance maybe on a woman and a lot all these sort of factors can contribute to this gap so they don't think the woman's going to stick around or she's not the primary breadwinner and for so many reasons it impacts the amount that she's paid and even in the accounting profession there was like we we really we do compensation surveys and there was a gap i think it was a little lower than the average i think I think women are a little better. Like women make around 84 or 87 cents to what a man man makes in the accounting profession, but still there is a gap there. And so there's some societal conditioning as well, um, which I think was highlighted in the research. Um, Yes. So some parents, um, when they're giving allowance to kids, give less to their daughters than they would their sons. That's what I just heard on a podcast was there was some research that showed that even at that young of an age, Girls are getting less allowance than boys, which is strange to me. But that's this whole, you know, the way we're, we're socialized, societal norms around women, um, where money was the male domain and money was for the, you know, the men to worry about. And it wasn't considered feminine to for women to be involved with money. I mean, you've had Avni Shah, we were talking about this on your podcast, and she talks about that too, that societal forces taught women that we don't have to be concerned about it. So we're socialized differently. So it's kind of hard to tease out. It's that nature nurture. Like, I think a lot of it is societal Mm -hmm. because as I said, when you kind of look at personality, I think that that really has a lot more to do with how we are with money. And the reason that um, some of this gender gap persists is because women think we're not supposed to be get out. We think we're not supposed to be involved with it. And then you get this vicious cycle. So you don't do it. And then you don't have the experience and then you don't have the confidence. Whereas I think that if you do try to educate yourself, you do try to manage your money properly, you learn along the way, it becomes a virtuous cycle. Right. You become more confident and you're willing to learn a little more and you know what I mean? Yeah. And so when it comes to, you know, opportunities at work, if you take a career break, it has a significant change on your wealth trajectory. Not only, you know, the years where you're not earning an income, mm-hmm. but those are years where you don't have those years of experience, which, you know, adds up in the calculus for determining pay. Right. And there's discrimination where some employers will say, we don't necessarily want to put someone into a position of having a lot of control when there's a chance that they might drop out of the workforce. Yeah, they have other priorities. Or they'll make assumptions like, oh, she's got kids now. She won't want to travel. Right. Or she won't want to work long hours. And you can't assume. You have to ask the person. Maybe that is true for some women, for some mothers, but maybe, or fathers too, but maybe it's not. You have to actually ask, but there is a lot of um, assumptions made and biases around those assumptions. So 
Um, the next sort of area that I wanted to ask you questions about uh, was was financial literacy between mm-hmm. genders. Mm-hmm. So there are perceptions and studies that show that men will have higher levels of financial literacy, but a lot of it is tied to these socioeconomic factors yeah. as well. Yeah. And also these the, the societal conditioning. If you don't put people into a position where they need to make decisions about money, how are they going to go through the, you know, um, decisions and and the processes of making decisions about money, which is where you learn about making decisions about money. So what, uh, what is the research that uh, CPA has put out here? Tell us about financial literacy and the differences between genders. So, um, when participants took this financial knowledge quiz, the men in the sample got a C minus. So not very good, but the women did even worse. They got a D plus, um, and they, they also, so that was financial knowledge and on financial capability, they also scored lower in most areas, um, except for keeping track, but they, so keeping track women and men scored equally, but on things like making ends meet, planning ahead, choosing products and staying informed, women scored worse than men. Stay with us. We'll be right back. You hear a lot about supply chains these days, because if the past couple years have taught us anything, it's that an efficient, well-managed supply chain is absolutely critical to keeping businesses successful and consumers happy. I'm Will Haywood, and I host a podcast called All Business, No Boundaries, where we talk about supply chains, how they work, what happens when they don't, and the innovations that are redefining what's possible in the world of logistics. Join me for insightful interviews with thought leaders and industry experts. We discuss how optimizing supply chains can break down the barriers that are holding businesses back. That's All Business, No Boundaries by DHL Supply Chain. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Okay. And so what is the resu- uh, the cause of these discrepancies? Does the study go into? Yeah. So when they dug into it um, and they looked at the uh, socio-demographic factors, which are age, income, and education, they found that women weren't significantly different from men when it comes to making ends meet, keeping track of money and planning ahead. So basically budgeting day-to-day money management. Um, and even when small differences between the genders were observed, personality played a much bigger role when it comes to choosing financial products, staying informed about finances and having actual financial knowledge. So let's, let's tackle this, these personality factors. So tell me more about personality influence on financial decision-making. So if you're not familiar, there's this big five, um, model of personality And it's this five-factor model, and you can think of the acronym OCEAN. So the five factors are openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. And then even within these five factors, there's two sub-factors or aspects within each of those big five. So there's a lot of research, and I know you're familiar with this research. I should, yeah, point out, so... um I worked on a very large project for uh, TD Wealth, which applied this five-factor model of personality to financial decisions and financial personalities. And uh, so as a point of disclosure, um, I worked with TD on this for a couple of years. Uh, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm quite familiar with yeah. the five-factor model. <laughs> and we'll talk about their their study yeah. that you know about. So there, there's um, some of these factors... Uh, are completely gender neutral, but there are some where women on average, and I will stress on average, Mm -hmm. tend to be higher or lower. So 
For example, women tend to be more agreeable than men. They also tend to be more conscientious and kind of, again, there's two aspects to that industriousness and orderliness. And it's on the orderliness dimension, like the following a plan and um, being self-disciplined, those types of characteristics, women tend on average to be higher. And then the last one is neuroticism, which um, is negative emotionality. So being reactive or be, or, I mean, it could be withdrawal. It could also be volatility. So those types of Uh, So neuroticism, also women tend to be a little bit higher on average than men. Now, uh, so that would mean that extroversion and introversion and openness are, you know, neither, it's not a gendered thing, Mm -hmm. factor. Um, And again, you're going to have women that are very low on conscientiousness. um, And you're going to have men that are very high on neuroticism, but these were just averages, so, so what does that mean then? So when you take into account, you know, mm-hmm. if you can uh, have this diagnostic test that say, all right, here are your personality traits. Mm-hmm. Um, here's what it means. What does this mean in general uh, for men versus women when it comes to financial decision making or capabilities or their potential? What should they be looking at based on this this research here? So I think it's about self-discovery and knowing yourself and who you are as a person and then playing to your strengths and finding ways to mitigate your weaknesses. Mm -hmm. So let's say as an example, um, you are not very conscientious. So you don't tend to do a lot of planning. You don't tend to see things through. You don't tend to stick it out. Um, You may not be the best at creating a financial plan and then sticking to it. Like, let's say you want to put aside $200 a month towards a goal that you have. If you're not conscientious, you may not get around to it. You're not self-disciplined. So you want to take the self-discipline out of the process and you would want to automate that transfer. Mm-hmm. Let's say from, you know, and you hear about this all the time to make automatic transfers from, let's say, your, your checking, your account where your pay is deposited to a separate investment account for that specific goal. So that's an intervention that's very easy to do for someone that knows that they're not particularly self-disciplined. Even if you are, it also makes things much easier to automate. Sure, it, yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, another one is agreeableness. Um, and this is really interesting. So women tend to be more agreeable than men. Um, they tend to be more trusting, to ask fewer questions, to go with the flow. Um, the, the aspects of agreeableness are compassion and politeness. Um, you know, if you're less agreeable, you're a little more blunt, a little more direct, a little more skeptical and questioning. And I think with financial advice, it's good to be a little more skeptical and questioning and not just not along when your advisor tells you something, not just, um, you know, agree to do things without really thinking it through to know what your goals are and to be able to articulate those things. You know, what's also interesting is, um, so this is kind of some inside baseball from when we were doing this study. And what oh, cool. we found was that when people ranked high for agreeableness, they put a premium on social harmony, right? Mm-hmm. And what that means is if there is a problem in a relationship, say between uh, a consumer and an advice provider or some professional, they're unlikely to bring up their discomfort. Mm-hmm. And this is bad for the relationship because most professionals would tell you, well, if you tell me something's wrong, then I can do something mm-hmm. about it. But if you don't tell me something's wrong, then I don't know and I assume everything is fine. And so right. what this can do is it can lead to these people who score high in agreeableness never saying that they're unhappy and they just leave one day. Right, and, and you didn't even know that they... Yeah, and you're like, what? Everything yeah. was going great. Yeah. And so here's the interesting part. So when you have a diagnostic test 
that says, hey, listen, you rank high for agreeableness. You put a premium on social harmony. This is what that means. When you tell the consumer that and you tell the financial advisor that in this case, it gives them permission to have tougher conversations because it removes the stigma of, oh, I don't want to uh, disrupt the harmony of, of the social setting. Yeah. And so I know that I have permission because this is something I'm susceptible to. And it's better for the relationship to have conflict. So one of my previous guests, Leanne Davey, talks about this conflict debt that accumulates in relationships mm. and when unaddressed leads to these potential problems. So by having this sort of output, kind of like a third party neutral assessment that says this is something that can happen, by having a third party saying, yeah, this is something that can happen, this is what you should do about it, it removes a bit of the stigma and allows you to, in this case, reduce that conflict debt, which could lead to a better working relationship. Yeah. So if the advisor knew you were really agreeable, they might say like, are you okay with everything we exactly. talked about? Exactly. Is there anything here that doesn't feel right for you? They're, they're just aware of And they know to push. Yeah. Right? So they ask that and, and you have a tendency to say, no, 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 everything's fine. They say, but are really? You, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, the other thing about agreeable, which was interesting, that came out um, uh, out of this uh, a recent article in the Journal of Personality and so Social Psychology was that agreeable people have lower credit scores, save less, and are more likely to default on loans. And um, I think that that is like, I think it found that women, that, um, sorry, agreeable people don't care as much about money. It's not a priority for them. So they kind of deprioritize it. And as a result, they're just not as good with their money. They, you know, they tend to have more debt. They're also, I think I also read that, um, they're not good at negotiating like raises and salary. And right. And that's a function. They're very agreeable. And that's a function for anyone who would score accordingly. Right. Yeah, so not so as, male or female. Yes. Yeah. Cause we talk about average differences, but certainly there's a lot of variation within genders as well. So mm-hmm. you can have, if for example, one gender tends to score lower on one factor than uh, another gender, it doesn't mean that there are people within that first gender condition that score way higher. Yeah. It's just on average. Right. right. Cause that, that's the whole thing. There are individual exactly. differences, right? Which you also have to take into account. Yeah, so this study, uh, this, uh, there was a study that showed that agreeable workers earn much less than those who are meaner, mm-hmm. and that that gap is even wider for men. So an agreeable man, I guess, will make a lot less than a disagreeable man compared to an agreeable and disagreeable woman. Yeah, there's one study that talked about um, the propensity towards uh, psychotic behaviors for different types yeah. of employment. So Just, it was always CEOs, right? CEOs are the most right. psychotic. <laughs> Um, and they're highly disagreeable. Uh, Does probably, it show that? probably. Uh, I mean, that's an assumption. Um, yeah. Now, what about um, risk tolerance? Right. So, when it comes to investing and risk tolerance, um, is there a gap? I'm sure the perception is that men are more aggressive. They tend to be um, falsely confident in their abilities. Overconfident, exactly. And uh, and so they may take on more risk, but uh, they may do more damage in the long run because they actually can't stomach the risk that they think they, they can take. So what yeah. what does the research show on the difference in risk tolerance with the investment portfolios? Well, I think that, um, well, first of all, like you said, with risk, I think men tend to be overconfident. That's oh, no, what, that's a fact. That's what the research that's a fact. Had, yeah. I don't need research to tell me that. They are overconfident. <laughs> and again, I think that's societal norms and um, a culturalization that tells us that um, – you know, men are good at this. Men should be interested in this. This is like a guy thing. Yeah. And then it becomes 
like almost like a sports a competition, like mm-hmm. a sport where you want to win. And I, I see this even when I talk to like colleagues and friends, men that are investors for them, it's always about winning and doing great and shooting the lights out and maximizing the amount of money they make. It's never about goals based investing. It's never tied back to like, did I make enough to achieve this goal or that goal? And there's, you know, I think there's a, there's research also that shows that goals-based investing really resonates more with women. So I think there is a perception that women are more risk averse than men. And I think that that might be true in some senses because women are higher on eroticism. They might be more reactive. Um, if there's a negative event, like the death of a spouse or divorce, they may tend to want to protect what they have and, um, make decisions under pressure like that. And, um, yeah, and some of the thinking is yeah. not so much risk aversion per se as it is risk awareness. Risk awareness yeah. Right. So that was a study that Elvest, this robo-advisor for women that's in the U.S., launched by Sally Krawcheck, she did the research that found that women are more risk aware. So they want to just really understand a risk before they take it on. And I know that's what I'm like. I feel like I'm very, I'm tolerant of risk when I understand it. Mm-hmm. But I'm not I'm not willing to just take a flyer on a stock tip that someone passed along to me or some investment because I want to really I think again I might go back to my accounting or auditing background I want to really understand the fundamentals. What about you? Are you do you think you're risk tolerant, I, risk averse? Oh my risk god! Aware? I I take risk all the time. I uh, most oh, outside your race car driver. Most outside observers would say that. Um, I take on a lot of risk. I'm very risky in general, but it's interesting. Yeah. And people will point to, you know, going to school to try and become a race car driver and having that as a hobby as, as someone who has no regard for risk whatsoever. That couldn't be further from the truth. Um, What I found is I feel safer on a racetrack when everyone's going the same direction, first of all, Um, (laughs) and everyone is trained uh, to, to, you know, Hopefully everyone's training is on the track, but you know, you've got proper safety equipment. You wear helmets. It's pretty safe compared to is driving it? on public roads. In oh, my compared to let's say driving up the 400 on a Friday afternoon in the summer. Yes. Yeah. I know what you mean. Like it would be stupid to put someone into, you know, an 800 horsepower sports car with no training and say, you know, go have fun, see how that works out for you. But that's not how it works, right? You, you train for it. And so, yes, I, and, I and part mean. of the training is identifying the potential risks. How do you mitigate those risks? Mm-hmm. And of course, yes, you know, if bad things happen, it can be very bad. But if you take a look at the statistics of how it happens and how bad those accidents are, it's very, very low. So I, you know, when people say they point to that and say, oh, that's that's clearly your On the surface, it appears to be risky. Right. Behavior. But I don't really see it that I know way. What you mean. The motorcycle riding. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll grant you that. I mean, that is a death wish. But I focus more on the positive aspects of, you know, the enjoyment of riding a motorcycle as opposed to the risks of, you know, impending death, which is a constant yeah. risk. Um, and my motorcycle was stolen um, last summer, two summers ago. Oh. And um, I haven't replaced it. And I don't think I will because now that I live downtown, it is much riskier here. I, yes. When I'm riding, I'm in a constant state of being petrified because everyone is on their phone. So when you're it's riding a motorcycle, true. you're slightly higher up. And when you're in traffic, you can see, you know, when you're the at a light, you can see into people's yeah. cars better. Everyone's distracted. Everyone's got their phone is in their laps. They're all looking down. And yeah. my biggest fear is getting rear-ended. 
right, at yeah. a stoplight. And, you know, that's all it takes, and you're dead. You don't have any protection. So, And it's not just you. It's the people that love you. That's the thing. I feel like when you do something a little bit risky, it's not just your own self that you're putting at risk, but you're yeah. potentially, because I, I'm a road biker, like a cyclist. Yeah. And some people would view that as being risky too. And, you know. Yes, I, I would. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. So I get what you're saying. But so really, I, you're the thrill-seeking risk-seeker here. I also snowboard, yes. Yeah, so See, there you go. I know. I have a bit of that in me. I'm saying I'm not totally risk-averse, <laughs> but I also feel like, you know, I wouldn't want anything to happen because it's not just me it would impact. It would impact my husband, my kids, like my family. Right, yes. Whereas I have no regard for anyone. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> that's not true. Mom, in case you're listening. Yeah, exactly. She doesn't. She doesn't listen to my podcast. She doesn't love me that much. Um this is a good segue, actually, into the next question I have for you, and that is about who makes better investors, women or men. And here's a theory I have, and this is going back to the auto racing world. So mm -hmm. I worked at an auto racing school, and we would have a lot of uh, events for corporate clientele, the public, people who wanted to become professional race car drivers. And what was interesting is in the corporate um groups. So a company would bring out 12 to 16 people at a time. They mm -hmm. go through their morning classes. And when I would sit in on some of these classes, um, you can see the difference in the expectations of the drivers, largely based on gender. So the men were all, yeah, I've got this car. And they're talking about their sports cars. And, and they like, bring their own cars? The, to get there. But then we gave them oh, proper okay. race cars to okay. drive, right? Whoa. So they all got the exact same okay. race car. That's interesting. And uh, the men were talking big games always in the morning. I, you know, I watch this racing, I watch this, I'm going to do the fastest, and they're all bench racing, as we call it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it was the women who are always faster. Really? Yeah, because they didn't come in with any preconceptions, right? Mm. And they listened to the instructors. And they're coachable. They're coachable, yes. Get it. I get and that. more often than not, and I, I would love to have gone back and done like a statistical analysis on this, but I can tell you from what I call anic data that <laughs> like it was that. almost always the case that the women did better than men. They were faster. They didn't uh, spin off the track as often. Um, and yeah, they were more coachable. So when it comes to investing, because a lot of men have preconceptions yeah. about yeah. investing. When you look at all pop culture movies and, mm -hmm. you know, the hot shot investor, it's always a dude, mm -hmm. right? It's always a high pressure boardroom situation. It's always men in the room. Um, mm -hmm. And so they're conditioned to think, yeah, if I'm a man, I've got to be good at this stuff. Yeah. Right? So they come with these preconceptions. Who's a better investor? Well, I think the studies show that women tend to be better investors. They do outperform. And I think... What the, what's behind that is they tend to trade less. Mm -hmm. So over time, um, I guess if they can hold the course and invest with a long-term outlook, they tend to outperform men who are maybe trying to trade more often, shoot the lights out. Uh, they're more patient. Um, like some of the qualities that have made Warren Buffett, you know, arguably one of the best investors of our time, uh, cautious, trading less and being patient are characteristics that are often associated with women and having that longer term focus. Right. So, um, and I think that it's hard to know because women aren't often given the chance to manage money. So very few hedge fund managers are women. And again, it's these biases about like, am I going to entrust uh, all this money to a, a woman because you have this image in your head from movies, from popular culture, from everything that it should be a, a guy. So, but I think when they look at it and women have the opportunity to manage money, they do tend to outperform for those reasons. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
Okay, so um, when it comes to what we take away with um, take away from from this information, what what prescriptions do you have for the listeners? You know, what uh, what's the takeaway? What does it take to be in charge of your financial decision making? What are the the important things that people need to consider? Whether it be investing, managing money at the you know uh, your budgeting. What, what do you tell people in general? What should they be doing? I think that it starts with knowing yourself, as I said earlier. So maybe you want to take one of these personality tests that are online. And the one that I really liked is um, understandmyself.com, which is $10 US. I have nothing to do with it. I just found it to be extremely robust. And the reporting is really, really detailed. So start by taking a personality test so you understand where you are on this scale of these big five factors. And so, and the ones that I feel like are really kind of correlated or connected to managing money are agreeableness and uh, conscientiousness and neuroticism and pay attention to where you are on those things. So as I said earlier, if you are someone that's not very conscientious, then automate your savings and your investing. If you're someone who's highly agreeable, um, be aware of that and Make sure that your advisor is aware of the the fact that you are sometimes uncomfortable questioning their advice, that they seem like, you know, they know everything and you don't know as much and um, you tend to kind of nod along and just go with the flow. Um, You know, if you know that you tend to be like react negatively, like on the neuroticism scale to, let's say, market events, and you know you would panic in a downturn, maybe working with an advisor that can coach you through those scary moments in the market to encourage you to hang in and keep contributing every month to your investments, working to mitigate those deficiencies or those weaknesses that you have. I think that's the key takeaway. I think if it's like, you know, where there's very few differences between the genders, there's no point, um, like really for women, like if you're already good at making ends meet and budgeting, like I don't think that we need a lot of mitigation in that area. Mm-hmm. So not wasting a lot of time where you're already good at something. Um, but I think also being proactive about it and taking on equally with your partner, if they, if they happen to be male or, who, you know, just everyone in a relationship or on their own should, should be involved with their finances. And sometimes it might be intimidating or you don't feel like you're good at it. But, I, but again, as I said, it could be either a vicious cycle or more of a virtuous cycle. So I think you want to do what you can to start learning and gaining more confidence by doing Excellent. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. The um, one last thing I just want to throw in there, um, and that is, you know, when it comes to these personality assessments or mm-hmm. inventories, as they're sometimes referred to, mm-hmm. um, the one that we're been talking about is the the five factor model of personality. And I know there are a lot of people who uh, know their Myers Briggs personality. Yeah. Right. And Myers Briggs is. I just have to say this. This is one of the the hills I'll die on. It's absolute <laughs> garbage. Like if you take a look at the academic literature, um, there's, uh, well, I think the, when I was doing my lit review on this research, 773 papers that reference Myers-Briggs and most of them basically said it doesn't work. And there was tens of thousands of papers that referenced the five-factor model. And this was developed by academics. Mm-hmm. Uh, Myers-Briggs was not Mm-hmm. And Myers-Briggs, I know, is a multi-billion dollar consulting industry. And there's a lot of people who are listening right now who know their Myers-Briggs personality. 
And I'll tell you, take your test every six months and the personality indicator is going to change um, because there's no reliability in that. Um, it hasn't been validated, um, whereas the five-factor model has. So I would just, you know. Yeah, uh, that's a good point. If you think you already know your personality type because you've done that at work, a Myers-Briggs assessment, maybe it's worth, you know, this $10 US. Or there are lots of free personality yeah. tests online to do a different one and see how it compares and use, you know, I, and again, I think Myers-Briggs, the, the dimensions are, I think there's four and they're slightly different than the big five. Yeah, there's four dimensions and two possible outcomes. So you have a total of, what would that be, 16 different personality yeah. types right. in total, like J and P and all that right, stuff. Right. Everyone knows that. Yeah. And, uh, I, you know, people put them on your Twitter bios and whatnot. And I just like, oh, I know. they knew. That's, that's funny. <laughs> yeah. That's how big of a consulting industry it has become, right? Everyone, yeah, anyone who's worked in a corporate setting has heard of it or has been exposed to it. But I had never um, done a personality test before until I started getting interested in this. Mm -hmm. And I did a few different ones. And they were, for me, they were pretty consistent and and they they feel true to who I am. And it, like, or even if I ask my family members, like, does this seem right? They, you know, most of these, most of the assessment seems like it is quite true to yeah. Who I am. I think it's pretty accurate. Great. We'll, uh, we'll leave it there. But as you know, every guest gets uh, a commercial. Um, <laughs> I know that you've got uh, a revised edition of your book coming out in May of 2020. That's right. Um, I'm probably going to publish, publish this podcast well before then. But um, why don't you tell people, well, whatever you want to. It's your, your commercial. Okay. So go ahead and take the floor. So if you want to learn more about the work that I do, you can visit my website, which is robintobe.com. And it's spelled R-O-B-I-N-T-A-U-B.com. And a lot of the work I do is um, content creation, as I mentioned. So my clients are really corporates, like financial institutions and um and I don't do, I think there's a misperception. I don't do accounting work anymore. I don't do people's taxes. Mm -hmm. um, I don't really work one-on-one -on -one with individuals in a planning sense. It's more about educating people about personal finance and investing. And as Preet mentioned, I did write a book called A Parent's Guide to Raising Money Smart Kids in 2011. And I've just updated it. The manuscript is with the publisher. The planned reissue is May 2020. It may have a slightly different title by then, but there will be information um, on my website about it, or you can follow me on Twitter. It's at robintobe.com or connect with me on LinkedIn. Those are the main social platforms that I use. Excellent. And uh, I'm, uh, I would welcome you to come back on the podcast when the book launches so we can talk more about it. But how am I going to have a better bottle of whiskey to bring by then? Well, that's, that's your challenge. <laughs> it is a challenge. <laughs> okay. Challenge accepted. <laughs> All right. I look forward to receiving the uh, whatever that is that is better than this Port Ellen Beauty sitting on the table right now. Thank you so much, my Robin, pleasure. for coming on the, uh, on the show. And to uh, my faithful listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. As always, if you haven't left a rating on iTunes, um, or I guess it's called Apple Podcasts now. I appreciate you doing that. Uh, I also read every single review that is left by listeners as well. So thanks so much for listening to the podcast, and we'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.